Okay. Great. So Ben, it's all yours. Well, it's a real pleasure being here today. And thank you, Radhika, for inviting me to moderating what I think will be a very enlightening and important discussion. We are discussing what I think is a must read, a very important book that really helps us to understand this important historical moment that we're all living in in the world. I'll, I'll begin today by saying that I'm speaking from Beijing. It's night here. Good morning to people on the other side of the world. It's great to see such an international panel of people joining from all over. And I actually, I just left the Nicaraguan embassy in Beijing where there was an event honoring the 202 202nd anniversary of the independence of Central America from Spanish colonialism. And there was a very enlightening discussion and exchange between Chinese diplomats and Central American diplomats. And the ambassador of Nicaragua from the Sandinista Front gave a brilliant speech talking about the historical moment that we're in in the world with the creation of an increasingly multipolar system that gives space for countries in the global south, even small nations like Nicaragua, the possibility to, to have an active role in shaping the creation of new political and economic institutions. And I think you know the book that Radhika has written really helps us to understand how we got into this moment today and the contradictions of the capitalist system. I think she does a brilliant uh, overview of the political economy of capitalism in various different stages up through the neoliberal era and today. And I think you know the title is very simple, but it does very much explain the kind of three uh, central contradictions that she explores, the contradictions inherent within the capitalist mode of production, Coronavirus, the COVID pandemic, which unleashed and exposed even more contradictions of the neoliberal system. Many have said that you could say that the 2008 was the beginning of the end of neoliberalism, and COVID was the end of the end of neoliberalism, where even the most neoliberal governments, the most financialized economies, like in the United States, were forced to return to a robust welfare state. Although now we see that those policies of social support are being systematically dismantled once again, but it exposed the in, inherent contradictions within this, this mode, uh, this, this, this uh, phase of the capitalist system. And finally, war. The war in Ukraine has once again uh, shown, not after the supply chains inter internationally in, in this neoliberal globalized system were disrupted by COVID, then you had a war that further disrupted supply chains. It has contributed to a global inflation crisis, which has fueled further debate about interest rates and about the dollar itself and the exorbitant privilege of the dollar, the paradox of the Federal Reserve essentially setting global monetary policy and making debt prohibitively expensive for countries in the global south, um, fueling massive capital flight. Now, even uh, you know, the hegemonic uh, Bretton Woods institutions like the IMF and the World Bank are saying very clearly that many countries are on the verge of a debt crisis. So with, with all of that context, I think um, we can start the conversations. And I'm very excited to introduce an incredible group of esteemed economists, uh, political thinkers, intellectuals, uh, brilliant uh, speakers today. And I'm going to begin um, with... I believe uh, Robert Wade is going to start today. 
and he's one among many um, very esteemed columnists, uh, 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 contributors today in this in this event. And um, I will say that Robert Wade is a professor of global political economy at the London School of Economics, a New Zealand citizen. He worked earlier at the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex University, the World Bank, the U.S. Congress, Princeton University, MIT, and Brown University. So we're going to begin this very enlightening exchange today. And then after Radhika, the author of geopolitical, the author of numerous books, including Geopolitical Economy and Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War, which we'll be discussing today, she will respond to each individual, well, to the comments made from each individual speaker. So with that said, Robert, the floor is yours. Thanks a lot. Robert, I don't know if you can hear me. I Robert, think Robert you're is muted. To share his screen. You're muted, Robert. Uh, Robert, uh, please make sure you are not muted. We can see your uh, your chart. You may want to go full screen, but we can't hear you. Okay, can you hear this? Yeah, perfect. Okay, so um, I agree with, um, oh gosh, wait a second. Sorry, I've got the wrong, um, uh, the wrong um, slide up. Just a second. I have to do this again. Where do I find? Um, do you want me to share your slide? Uh, yeah, yes, actually, that would be uh, okay. safer. Okay, hang on. Um, okay. So, but the problem is, no, if I, okay, I hope I, I don't show up when I'm sharing the slide. Uh, here it is. You should be able to see it. Yes, I can see this, but can you see it now? Yes. Okay. So, um, first of all, let me say I agree with what Ben said about Radhika's excellent book. Um, secondly, let me say that um, I've been, my reading of the book has been impeded by a great deal of, in fact, a mountain of dissertation marking. And now the new term is kicking in. Um, and thirdly, um, I want to uh, make the substantive point that there is always a danger in social science generally in focusing on what is changing and not focusing on what is not changing. And that, and I want to focus uh, 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 just a few short remarks um, on what is uh, what has not been changing rather than what uh, has been changing. So let me see. Um, I have to go to the next slide. How do I do that? Uh, I will do it. Okay. So um, this is where I start um, with um, a president. Yes, with President Xi's uh, statement um, that. Um, oh my goodness! So this is not quite. 
this is what this, this is the first slide after this one i see hmm okay well some somehow that's do you want not me to go to this one uh, no, no, just go back to the first one. But my point is that Radhika is echoing what President Xi, can you go to the first slide, the next slide, um, is, is echoing what President uh, Xi has been saying, that the um, East is rising and the West is falling. And um, coincidentally, just on the front page of the New York Times International Edition today, uh, Kishore Mabumbani, the former ambassador for Singapore, um, uh, is quoted as saying exactly the same thing. The East is rising, the West is declining. Um, so I want to uh, just present um, three uh, quantitative indicators, um, which seem to me to qualify uh, that very broad statement. Um, and I, I will uh, give some evidence on uh, three indicators of national power. And the first one is country shares of world GDP. This is not in purchasing power parity terms, but in current nominal dollars, uh, referring to the US, the EU, China, and Japan. Um, their shares over time from, from uh, 1960 till today um, the second indicator, relative GDP per capita, and again, the same countries together with the world, so the US and China over that long time, and in, in relation to both Japan, the EU, and the world average, that's uh, GDP per capita. And the third indicator of national power is national corporate power, namely the share of corporate profits accruing to um, firms in different countries um, in a number of specific sectors. So you take the total profits accrued in any one of, say, 25 sectors, advanced sectors, and you look at the countries uh, where the, um, the profits are concentrated according to the companies that are headquartered in that, in that country. And my basic point is that the US has long been, and it remains today, the number one on all three of these measures. And I will show you um, in the next slides what I mean. So um, this is the national shares of world GDP, 1960 2000 to 2021. Um, the blue line is the US share of world GDP measured not in purchasing power parity, but in current exchange rate terms. And you can basically see that although the US share has, of course, been declining, declining quite a lot since um, 1960, um, it remains the biggest economy, um, uh, well ahead of the EU, uh, well ahead of China, and of course, very much uh, ahead of Japan. You can see the trajectory of those four entities um, there. So by this indicator of national power, it's a very crude indicator, share of world GDP, the US remains number one. N uh, the next slide. The yes, the next slide is, is relative uh, GDP per capita from the same time period, 1960, 2020. 
And again, you can see that the US with the blue line um, has the highest average income um, uh, relative to these other entities um, uh, over almost this whole period. Um, uh, so the uh, China is the blue line down at the bottom, the light blue line down at the bottom. And you can see that China, by this measure, China's per capita income um, has just um, very recently hit the world average um, average income, and uh, Japan and the EU um, well ahead of that of the world average, but well below the United States. So the US on this indicator of national power also remains number one. Uh, can I have the next slide? Sorry, one second. The, uh, yes. yes, that one. And so now the third measure, relative national corporate power, not state power, corporate power. And so, as I just said, this is a measure which um, calculates the, the share of total profits earned in each of a number of advanced sectors which accrue to companies headquartered in different countries. Um, and one can then compare these national profit shares uh, between countries. Can I have the next slide? Okay, so if American capitalism was seriously weakening, uh, as Radhika uh, says, one would expect to see corporate decline in uh, American firms and corporate ascent in firms based elsewhere, especially in China. Um, and so this calculation is based on the Forbes 2000 data set on the top 2000 publicly listed corporations across 25 broad sectors in the period 2005 to 2021. And the bottom line of this calculation is that in 17 out of the 25 sectors, in other words, 68%, um, U.S. corporations have had the number one profit share um, in each year, in each year, not just uh, overall, but in every year between 2005 and 2001, including uh, 2021, including through the crash of 2008, 9, 10. Um, and so no other country comes close to that um, achievement. Um, China comes closest in, in the last year, to 2021. Um, its firms had the leading profit share in four of those 25 sectors in banking, construction, real estate, and forestry, metals, and mining. Um, and the only other countries that um, get to number one position uh, are Japan and Saudi Arabia. Um, can I have the next slide? Um, so uh, this in no way uh, diminishes China's achievement. Um, in 2005-7, its firms had no presence in the top three um, nationalities by profit share in any of the 25 sectors, uh, whereas in 2019-21, its fir firms had the uh, a top three presence in 15 out of the 25 sectors, not number one, but it was present in the top three. 
um, in terms of profit share in 15 of the sectors. So that that is a very dramatic um, uh, achievement in, by this particular um, measure. Um, and the, the countries that have lost profit share um, in this uh, array are Western European and Japanese corporations, um, and especially Western European, including the UK. They're the ones that have gone down in their profit share. The UK, for example, um, corporate profit shares have fallen in 10 out of the 25 sectors and have increased in only one. Um, okay, so can I have the next slide? I think that, that yes. Um, yes, so now to make a, a, a slightly different point, um, which is a qualification to um, the, the Chinese model um, uh, presented as a, a great success. And my point here is that we should recognize that it's deep integration into global capitalism does make it more dependent than the earlier East Asian cases. And by that, I'm thinking of Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, where the, their, their economic rise was driven mainly, not entirely, but mainly by domestic firms um, in terms of production and exports. Whereas China's export-driven boom has depended more heavily on foreign capital on Western corporations shifting low and then medium valued products to China um, has depended on foreign capital more than uh, domestic capital relative to the earlier East Asian cases. Um, and just as, as one example of this, in the sector called office and telecommunications equipment, which includes smartphones, uh, this is China's most valuable export sector. Um, and this sector in China accounts for 33% of world exports in that sector, but Chinese firms accrue only 5.5% of the total profit share in that sector, um, according to the Forbes data, whereas the US accounts for only 6% of world exports in that sector but it accrues 61% of world profits in that sector. And much the same applies in other of China's top export sectors, including advanced medical equipment. Um, can I have the next slide? Um, but uh, I want to finish by just saying that um, these dependencies, China's dependencies on US and other Western firms do not make China a subordinate state in the way that Japan and Germany clearly are a subordinate state in the US informal empire, but China is not. And that's why, of course, the US is so concerned to contain China, because China is not a subordinate state. And the other qualification to this picture of dependent China is that China's industrial strategy, such as Made in China 2025, is strengthening China's national corporate power somewhat, but at least so far, that has not translated through into profit shares. And just the final point is that some people, um, some people say that um, 
profit shares, the profit accounting is very, very unreliable, and they tend to dismiss any analysis based on profit shares. Um, I just think that that is, um, that is misleading. Um, one can admit that there are big problems in the reporting of profits and still think that there is um, there is meaning to be got from this kind of um, analysis. Um, I'll finish on that note. Thanks very much. Very interesting comments from Professor Robert Wade, and and it's great to see that there are a variety of opinions here today being expressed, and I'm looking forward to the discussion later on. I think he does make some good points that sometimes those of us uh, who are very happy to see the decline, the relative decline in U.S. hegemony, we also shouldn't overstate the case. The U.S. is still very powerful economically. I would add that, you know, according to most recent UN industrial data, China does represent 31% of global manufacturing production, whereas the US now represents only around 15%. But certainly the, the points you made, especially about, you know, in terms of nominal GDP and in particular GDP per capita, the United States is still very, very powerful. Um, I'm excited to move on to uh, another. A uh, brilliant guest who will be joining us today, Victor Gao. Victor Gao is the vice president of the Center for China and Globalization, the chairman-elect of the National Organization of the International Gas Union, the chairman of China Energy Security Institute, the vice chairman of China Beidou Internet Industrial Pr Promotion Organization, uh, a member of the Global Council of Asia Society in New York City, and a, an advisor to Saudi Aramco and a member of the board of directors of numerous listed companies in Hong Kong. Victor, the floor is yours. Go ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, it is my great pleasure to attend today's very important uh, seminar I'm based in Beijing. And uh, congratulations to Radhika uh, on the uh, publication of this very important book at as I agree, uh, this uh, very important point in history. Um, uh, allow me to share with you some of the uh, impressions or observations, especially uh, as prompted by the uh, excellent remarks by Professor Wade just now. Uh, first of all, uh, comparing China and the United States, uh, I would say um, uh, if we use the nominal exchange rate, uh, China will surpass that of the United States uh, around 2030. Whether 2032, 2035, etc., it's not certain. And you have different uh, projections by different banks or institutions. But I would say in another 10 years or so, uh, and most likely less than 10 years, uh, if we use official exchange rate, China will be larger than the United States. And if you believe in Elon Musk, by the middle of this century, China's uh, GDP by official exchange rate will be doubling the size of the United States. Uh, China is already about 130% of the United States if we use purchasing power parity, but the Chinese government refuses to use PPP as the basis for measuring the sizes of the economies of the United States and China. Now, the other point, in addition to what Professor Wei just now mentioned, China's manufacturing output is larger 
than the combined uh, manufacturing output of the United States, Germany, and Japan. This is very significant because if we still look at the hardcore um, manufacturing productions, for example, uh, this is truly what matters, uh, especially when you think about a war, uh, the possibility of a war breaking out, for example, even though there is increasing emphasis leaning towards cyber war or drones, etc. But if you look at the traditional uh, hardcore part of the war, manufacturing, uh, production of iron and steel, you name it, uh, China is really leading the world. In many uh, our, uh, productions, China's production is not only larger than that of the United States, is more than half the size of the global uh, production. Now, another very quick point about uh, the digital economy we are coming in. I think Washington actually had a point in zooming in on this chips war against China. I think uh, what they originally expected that if they can zoom in on the chips and uh, throw a wedge into the Chinese access to the sophisticated uh, advanced uh, chips, uh, mostly designed uh, and produced by the United States or Japan, South Korea and China's Taiwan province, this will slow down China's economic development. Now you know what happened to uh, uh, this uh, uh, Mate uh, 60 Pro uh, unleashed by uh, Huawei. It seems that Huawei refuses to be uh, uh, pushed down. And now uh, you can try that by yourself. I think this uh, uh, Mate 60 uh, Pro, as Huawei now uh, openly declares to the whole world, definitely is... Uh, much more advanced than the Apple equivalent. And what impressed me are two points, and I think each of these two points are very significant. One is that Huawei seems to be completely achieving self-reliance in the production of uh, sophisticated uh, chips. Uh, they didn't mention the measurement, for example, whether it's six, whether it's seven mm or even five mm. Now, as revealed today and yesterday, most likely Huawei has made a profound breakthrough in 5MN. So that means Huawei has uh, broken out of the uh, uh, protection walls uh, erected by the United States and has achieved not only the technological breakthrough, but also the massive amount of production they can line up because they are talking about lining up about 20 million handsets between now and the end of uh, next year, et cetera. And then the second thing, and, and if the United States cannot strangle China, including Huawei in terms of the advanced uh, semiconductor chips, I don't think there is anything else that the United States can think of that they can strangle China. Now, the other thing is that this uh, Mate 60 Pro, has the ability to communicate directly uh, between your phone and a satellite 30,000 kilometers above ground. This is truly remarkable. And it is so small, it's embedded in your phone, and uh, it can communicate you know, smoothly, uh, not only in terms of disasters, earthquakes, etc., but also if you try on any normal day, you can communicate to uh, a satellite way above your head. It's not the low orbit satellites that Elon Musk 
and space SpaceX uh, is famous for, for example, but it is a very high altitude uh, uh, satellite, about thirty thousand kilometers. Now, uh, what is the military significance of this kind of technology? I think uh, Pentagon really need to uh, be uh, thinking about if Huawei can use this miniaturized uh, communication devices in their civilian use uh, smartphone, they probably need to conclude that the Chinese military at least would have a similar version, if not much better version than this one. And this one is not, uh, uh, according to at least the public knowledge, is not accessible to any other military in the world. So that means you know, China is really breaking new grounds, not only in terms of the total amount of the manufacturing production, but also moving very uh, uh, to the forefront of these very sophisticated uh, productions, R&D, breakthroughs, etc. And further, if uh, Huawei and the rest of China are really moving into very sophisticated pro production of semiconductor chips, allow me to emphasize another point. And I've been making this point for uh, ever since the United States uh, started to manhandle uh, Huawei about uh, three or four years ago. That is, China one day will no longer need to import any chips from the United States or Japan or AOK or China's Taiwan province. And by achieving complete self-reliance in chips and being able to do whatever that these chips will allow you to do. And if you think about the new age of you know, digital age, uh, metaverse, etc., you cannot live without chips. Chips will become a uh, 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 factor like air or water, for example, or land in our previous revolutions. So uh, when Wade said, Professor Wade said that in terms of the profit share, et cetera, et cetera, I agree, but I think uh, China is catching up. And uh, China was very happy with this uh, global division of work. China imported more chips than they spent on palm importing crude oil. Can you believe it? Uh, the, 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 the price tag on chips imported is the biggest price tag for all the Chinese imports over the past uh, decade or so. Now there is a revolution and China will eventually be self-sufficient in chips and also China will be uh, swamping the market in the world with very low-priced, high-quality chips. And this will happen within the path, uh, coming five to 10 years. So we will all live to see this megatrend being uh, uh, unfolding in front of our eyes. Now, another thing, allow me to mention very briefly, uh, that is the, the way, it's, it's the definite leading uh, position of China in terms of the EV production, electric vehicle production. You can see that uh, very clearly uh, in the Munich uh, Auto Show uh, just recently it's still going on, I suppose. And I think not only in terms of the design production of the EV cars, but also China has accumulated a dominant position in terms of the battery technology and many of the metals and the raw materials are indispensable to the production of the EV cars. And 
as everyone knows, China has really accumulated a very, very absolute dominance in rare metal, rare earth, as well as the proprietary uh, technologies in uh, processing these metals for civilian use as well as for uh, uh, military use. That means China is really moving much more ahead. And uh, this will be the new revolution we are thinking about. You know, uh, Radhika was talking about capitalism and uh, coronavirus and war, for example. I think China is really very eager to push forward, regardless of whatever maximum pressure that the United States wants to lump onto China. And as I mentioned, if China is becoming the global leader of the EV cars and all the related technologies and materials, batteries, you are thinking about that. And also China is really getting rid of the uh, suppression of the United States in terms of the semiconductor chips and pushing ahead. Then it positions China very well in entering the new, the next stage of economic revolution. That is the digital revolution. I think the digital revolution is already with us, but it will intensify and accelerate in the coming decades. And I think eventually this will be the part of the um, industrial and digital uh, production that will add a lot of uh, revenue and profit to the Chinese economy as a whole. Now, the other thing is that China does not see any fun in a headlong competition with the United States. China wants to develop its own proprietary technologies, mostly because of the maximum pressure the United States is lumping on China. China feels that they have no other choice but to achieve uh, self-reliance and uh, independence in this regard. So it's, it's not what China originally wanted, but the end result is very clear. China is achieving self-reliance in chips. China is building up this leading position, absolute leading position in EV cars. China is really dazzling the world with its dominance in rare earth and rare metals. And allow me to mention another thing. You, you may know that a few months ago, China announced the export review for two, what they call scattered metals, uh, GA and GE. Now, I understand in China's sleeves, there are about two dozen similar measures they can use. They may decide not to use, but the restrictions of the review on GA and GE is just the first solvo of this trade war if the United States wants to uh, manhandle China again and again, because they can put export review on GA and GE, and they have about another two dozen or so cards they can play with Washington if they really want to continue this manhandling. Now, I will stop here. I just want to say that we are truly living in a revolutionary age. And what uh, Radhika is telling us through her book is really very illustrative of many of the situations on the ground. And I would say that the uh, unipolar world that the United States wants to build is not possible. It is crumbling before it is really established. The world we are living in is multipolar world, and uh, a few countries in the world want to willingly uh, live in subjugation to any other country. All the countries want to be free, want to be treated equal. They want to have their own voices heard on the global stage. And I think that's the mega trend. And I hope you know China's rise and China's 
refusal to be beaten up is a very a positive step in this regard. And eventually, my vision is that Washington and Beijing will need to live and let live. They need to get along with each other in peace rather than uh, Washington trying to get to China's jugular as if there will be no consequences. There will be consequences. As I mentioned before I wrap up, the consequence is that the maximum pressure by the United States on China in trying to deny China's access to the advanced semiconductor chips is spelling the doom for the semiconductor businesses of the United States. Thank you. Thank you for your comments, Victor. And, and it's, it's very enlightening to hear two very different perspectives back to back. Like I said, I'm very excited to hear other con contributions today in this panel. And I think, you know, Victor made a lot of very important points about how quickly China has been developing economically. Uh, Robert mentioned that, you know, if you look at the data over the past 20 years, the U.S. technologically is still the dominant power. But even in just the past few years, China has made enormous strides, not only with the uh, the breakthroughs in, in seven nanometer semiconductors that now it's building in the new Huawei 60 Mate Pro, despite U.S. sanctions. But furthermore, just in three years, China has also quintupled its car exports. And, and it was in fifth place just three years ago in global car exports. And now it has overtaken Germany and Japan as the top car exporter. And, and a, a significant reason for that is China's leading role in electric vehicles. And I will say, as someone who grew up in the United States and has spent the last decade in Latin America, it's quite incredible seeing how many electric vehicles are just being driven by random people in on the streets of Beijing. It really is, you're, you know, seeing the future of this technological breakthrough. Um, with that said, I'm going to move on to the next speaker. I am delighted to present Jayati Ghosh, uh, a brilliant economist, someone who's been a big influence on me. She taught economics at JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University in India, for nearly 35 years. And in the past few years, she's been a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She has authored and or edited 20 books and more than 200 scholarly articles and some of her recent books actually cover some of the topics that Radhika also um, covered from a different perspective in hers, including um, some of Jayati's most recent books, including include The Making of a Catastrophe, COVID-19 and the Indian Economy, and also her book, When Governments Fail, COVID-19 and the Economy. She has received several prizes for her work and has advised governments in India and other countries, and was a member of the National Knowledge Commission of India. So, Jayati, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Ben, and thank you, Radhika, for inviting me to this fascinating discussion. Thank you also for producing such a thought-provoking book. And you can also tell it's thought-provoking with the really excellent comments we've already heard. I mean, uh, you know, Robert is always uh, very illuminating. And I think many of his points were, were really interesting and well taken. And of course, Victor's points as well. So I'm also going to look uh, not at the medium term so much as the recent period and uh, take each of those three points in Radhika's title uh, one by one, beginning with the coronavirus and, and specifically with the pandemic. And 
I think, you know, um, I, I think there's a point at which you kind of suggest that the COVID-19 is the end of the neoliberal era. I don't think that's true for the rest of the world. I think, yes, it certainly changed the attitudes of states in the rich countries, uh, in the core of global capitalism. But for large parts of the rest of the world, I don't even want to call it them developing anymore, let's say the low and middle income countries, uh, neoliberalism is alive, well, flourishing. And uh, it has been, uh, and it continues in these uh, structures and the policies pushed by the international financial institutions upon these countries. It continues in the internalization of these ideas in these governments of these countries in terms of austerity, fiscal repression, uh, tax policies that blatantly favor the wealthy and large corporations, uh, the lack of any kind of attempts to pr produce public spending for social and economic rights, and you know all of those things. So neoliberalism unfortunately hasn't died for most of the world's population. Uh, it's, it is temporarily, shall we say, taking a break in some of the rich countries, but I wouldn't say it's gone either. And what we are more likely to get, I'm afraid, in much of the, uh, I suppose you could call it the decadent rich world, is a resurgence of a new kind of neoliberalism, which is combined with political populism, fascism, whatever you want to call it. We're already seeing the beginnings of that with Meloni in Italy, we're likely to see it quite soon in France if Marine Le Pen wins the next election. And who knows what will happen in the United States next year. So, you know, these are not, uh, these are phases that could very quickly change even in the rich world. I do also want to emphasize that um, the pandemic is not in a sense endogenous to the broader trajectory of capitalism that we are going to see more and more public health disasters and pandemics. So yes, there was one particular thing. It's not, it's not just that the pandemic, the coronavirus episode is maybe partially over in, in much of the world, uh, but it, there's now growing evidence that this was a reflection of a lab-based outbreak. I mean, it's uh, it, quietly accepted by pretty much all the major public health people I have talked to, including in the US establishment, although it's not something that is broadcast. But increasingly, we're going to see pandemics that are driven by climate change. We're going to see health disasters resulting from the emergence of zoonotic diseases because climates have changed, because of major shifts in weather patterns, and uh, the impacts on human and natural populations that have not developed immunity for those things. And these are going to get wider and worse. I, I think everybody accepts that, including in, in the WHO, including everywhere. I mean, people know that this is coming. The systems that would enable humanity to deal with it are not in place. And that reflects the broader geopolitics that Radhika talks about so well. The fact that, you know, we we are in a world of competing powers and the obsession with that geopolitics, with that competing uh, nationalisms is much greater than any urge towards international cooperation. The, the second uh, thing I'd like to talk about is the war. And particularly, a lot of the, um, I don't think Radhika shares them, but you know, the, the trouble is that there's so much media pushing the wrong line about uh, the 
fact of the Ukraine war leading to global shortages of grain and so on and so forth, that it's really important to restate this once again. The Ukraine war did not lead to any decline in global supply of wheat, zero. In fact, global production of wheat increased, global stocks increased, global trade exports of wheat increased over the period of the peak of that uh, war. That is to say, the period when wheat prices rose globally from January to June 2022, which is you know, really the massive peak in global wheat price rises, they go back to pre-war levels already by October to November 2022, right? So they go up massively and then they come down again to pre-war levels. But even in that period of massive price increase, there was no decline in global production of wheat, global trade of wheat, or global supplies of wheat, which includes the stocks. So what are we talking about? We are talking about a massive price increase, which was enabled by a lot of media discussion about how, oh yes, now there's this war and Ukraine and Russia are big wheat exporters, so there's going to be a price rise, which allows the public to accept price rises that are first driven by agribusinesses, which, all of which made historically unprecedented profits in this period, especially in the April to June quarter of 2022 and then allowed massive financial speculation to come back into commodity futures markets. So that let's say in the Paris wheat exchange, 72% of open contracts were held by financial players. So clearly this was not something that was driven by the war, nor was it driven by the Russian blockade on ports like Odessa in the Black Sea and so on. So all, you know, all of that was media creation. And of course, uh, let's say global leaders were complicit in this and actively propagated that particular line. But we should not be, um, shall we say, falling for that one ourselves. I do believe, however, that the war and its persistence and continuation is a reflection of, um, I forget who, I think it was possibly Branko Milanovic said that this is the victory of the owners of the means of mass destruction over the owners of means of, of production. It is the victory of the military industrial complex in the US in particular, because it enables massively increased demand for their products. And it pushes uh, a lot of these products also onto Europeans who had significantly decreased their defense spending. And uh, it basically revives an industry that was otherwise, shall we say not declining, but definitely stagnating. So the Ukraine war, if you're going to follow the money, the major beneficiaries are definitely the US military industrial complex. And we have to recognize that it's not necessarily a victory of US production capital or even production capital anywhere else. And that we have to therefore recognize the differences amongst capitals. There was a period when finance capital was a major beneficiary over you know, pr productivist capital. This is a period where we can talk about the armaments uh, players being the major beneficiaries. The third thing I want to talk about is, if you like, the nature of geopolitics. And in that kind of touches on what I think Radhika is talking about, you know, in this whole thing about capitalism. And I think her analysis of, uh, let's call it decadent capitalism in the core is superb. It's absolutely spot on. You've got it identified it completely. Does it follow that everybody else is socialist? There I disagree. I would not classify China as socialist. No, I'm sorry. Certainly not my vision of what socialism is. I would see it 
as a very, very successful state-led capitalist economy, which is successful also because of a remarkably efficient ability to discipline the capitalist class. China is able to discipline its domestic capitalists. There was a period when it was not doing so. And then, you know, Xi Jinping has brought that back in a big way and is able to discipline them and mold both finance and large bourgeoisie towards the interests of the state and the economy. And yes, it is a productivist, uh, spectacular success. There's no question about it. And I think both things are true. I think what Robert described in terms of the relative positions and what Victor described in terms of the trends, both are absolutely true. The relative position, still China well below, but China's rate of change is remarkable and I think historically unprecedented. And so, yes, who knows in a decade, two decades from now, it will, you know, what will happen. And clearly it is on a much more upward trajectory. In that sense, I also agree with Victor that this technology war against China is really an own goal by the United States, which is unraveling very quickly. It's already unraveling, I think, as pointed out in the latest term. A phone that is brought out, the new restrictions on Apple phones in China, all of these are going to hurt US uh, much more than they will hurt China. And China has shown its ability to acquire and uh, create its own technology very dramatically. Is that a victory for socialism? No. Is the emergence of all these new powers all over the world, is Saudi Arabia socialist? Is the UAE socialist? No. So let's not kid ourselves. This is geopolitics at a very advanced level. This is certainly a fight for you know, global hegemony in different ways. Does it mean it's capitalism versus socialism? I personally do not think so. I, I believe that, that this is a newer, much more advanced form of uh, attempts at geopolitical control, uh, which also involve economic control in different ways that the US has a longer history of really terrible attempts at domination and really disastrous impacts on war, on devastation and so on. And China certainly does not. China uh, to date has not invaded any other country. China has not uh, you know, done, unleashed forces of mass destruction in the same way. And, and so there's no comparison between the two in that respect. But on the other hand, its relations with large parts of the developing world are not necessarily those of just you know um, fraternal relations where you're all just working together and so on. They are much more driven by extractivist requirements and they continue to be so. This leads me to my final and more um, sort of general point, which is that in all of this discussion, I think it's also all important for us to remember that whatever we see in terms of human and social progress should not be defined only in terms of production. I'm, I'm uh, um, in a sense arguing against growthism or productivism as the indicator of human progress. I would say that, yes, it's amazing, this ability to increase GDP, to reduce income poverty, to diversify the economy, to shift the technological frontiers. Yes, they're all great. But I do believe that if we want to be thinking of ourselves as, as socialists, we have to be thinking of them in terms of expanding human freedoms and uh, in, all, in all ways, in terms of you know, the, the Sen type capability, but also the, 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 the old Marxian notions of human freedom. And those have to go beyond 
be purely productivist and they have to take much more explicit account of the ecological constraints. So we need to create human societies that are obviously more equitable, more just, more humane, but also much more in harmony with nature and the planet. And so, so I guess in a sense, what I'm responding to here is the idea that, you know, there's this terrible decadent capitalist score, which I agree with, but that the alternative is this productivist, very efficient, very remarkable, very impressive uh, uh, Chinese state capitalism. I, I don't think these should be our only alternatives. Thanks. Very enlightening comments from Jayati Ghosh. And once again, it's very interesting to, to hear a variety of perspectives here. I'm also looking forward to hearing Radhika's response. I do think that she would agree that obviously the opening of an increasingly multipolar world doesn't mean that it's the same as the first Cold War, where it was clearly a battle between socialism and capitalism. There are a lot of countries that are playing both sides, like the Persian Gulf monarchies, and no one, of course, would say they're great political models. But um, I think it does open a lot of political space for new economic alternatives. And Jayati also made an, another important point, along with uh, Professor Wade, that we shouldn't be too overly optimistic cheering for the decline of neoliberalism. Um, certainly, yeah, there are many governments implementing neoliberal policies. Also, Jati made a very important point about the corporate greedflation that we've seen. And, and her colleague at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Isabella Weber, um, her research on greedflation, it's been, it's been very um, it's been very positive to see that it's gotten kind of mainstream attention. And even mainstream media outlets are acknowledging now that corporate profits, even the International Monetary Fund acknowledged that in a white paper that corporate profits have contributed disproportionately to consumer price inflation in recent years. Um, let's continue now with another great speaker, Martin Jacques. And oh, um, sorry, uh, Martin has had to cry out. He has a book deadline okay. today or tomorrow. So, so, so we go to Ruslan. Okay, great. So I have the pleasure of being able to introduce Ruslan Darasov, who is a senior research fellow at the Central Institute of Economics and Mathematics of the Russian Academy of Sciences. He's all, he is the author of the book, The Conundrum of Russian Capitalism. Ruslan, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, dear colleagues, uh, I'm honored to join such a number of outstanding experts in this field and uh, to join this uh, very elucidating uh, discussion. And of course, I want, uh, I also want to uh, congratulate Radhika with this new, very interesting and important book. And I think that it can be seen as continuation or even uh, maybe even a new volume to uh, geopolitical economy your previous masterpiece. And uh, I want to say a few words about uh, what is so important uh, in this book from my standpoint. I think that the great advantage of uh, this book is that it uh, presents, a, uh, or at least attempts, and I think it is a successful uh, attempt, to present modern capitalism as a holistic social system. And on the other hand, I would, uh, consider this, uh, this picture as uh, present as history. 
because Radica based her uh, all her conclusions on uh, historical development of uh, historical dynamics of modern capitalism. And at the same time, uh, she treats history not as uh, some uh, chain of random events, but uh, explains its logic on the basis of, uh, of understanding of capitalism as a contradictory system of value production, her second chapter. And then she explains, applies this to, uh, to, uh, to the structure of modern global capitalism, uh, to the um, phenomenon of, uh, of neoliberalism and financialization. And on this basis, she, she, in this perspective, she explains the role of, of uh, coronavirus, coronavirus problem and this unfortunate uh, Russian-Ukrainian war. And uh, I see here a very important link between structure of, of the world economy explained as a contradictory event and phenomenon and uh, the system of international relations. I think for me, this is uh, the most important because this link is, uh, is most often omitted in, in uh, other uh, great books on uh, current stage of development of capitalism. And I think it is vital, even for this very interesting discussion between Professor uh, Wade and Victor about the role and perspectives of China. Uh, I think it is important to see this problem in the global context presented in this book. Uh, and um, uh, what is important, I think, is that the book emphasizes the pivotal role of the 2008-2010 uh, crisis, which unleashed this demise of neoliberalism. Uh, and then it demonstrates how neoliberalism tries to adjust to these new adverse conditions in the world, uh, exacerbating international conflicts, and uh, of course, focusing uh, her analysis on Russian-Ukrainian war. And this makes the picture of modern capitalism as, uh, as a contradictory system of value production, um, reliable and viable picture. Um, and I, I, I would like to add a couple of uh, considerations of, of my uh, own conclusions uh, to this thesis, which can support this uh, central thesis that the crisis of 2008-2010 uh, conditioned exacerbation of uh, international conflicts in the modern world. I think that uh, uh, the nature of this crisis is, uh, is, under, is uh, understood um, by majority of authors in a very limited sense. While Radica emphasizes that uh, it was the end of, uh, of the previous productive stage of uh, of uh, at least U.S. capitalism. Uh, and this is very important because uh, uh, I, um, I support the authors who believe that uh, the crisis uh, was conditioned by enormous shift of production from the global north to global south, uh, because this uh, was material precondition for financialization and neoliberalism because when pr production was shifted to poor countries uh, uh, with the only aim to cut costs of production, uh, which uh, uh, became 
unbearable in result of so-called stagflation of the 1970s and global capitalism, US-led capitalism, found this uh, way out from this impulse to shift the burden of production, costs of production to developing nations, uh, to China, India, and other countries. Uh, and this was accompanied by uh, development of uh, financial markets um, on the basis of financial speculative capitalism. And uh, it is not uh, uh, an accident because now financial markets greatly increase their role of redistribution, redistributing incomes created by poor nations in favor of transnational capital of, uh, of Western countries. And uh, I believe that this created preconditions uh, and uh, historical backdrop for current uh, events, including uh, Chinese, uh, uh, US-China conflict and uh, Russian-Ukrainian war. Uh, because uh, such a situation when uh, Asia is the major, major producer of uh, goods and uh, the West is major um, beneficiary of uh, financial incomes uh, associated with creation of these goods. Uh, this uh, uh, this um, structure of the world economy uh, is fraught with conflict, crisis, and war. Uh, because uh, in result of that, inevitably, the fundamental problem of capitalism that uh, labor is underpaid, and this results in a systematic um, short uh, of uh, demand in relation with uh, supply. These conditions were, uh, which previously generated uh, the crisis uh, the, of Great Depression of the 1930s, these conditions were reestablished on global scale by modern capitalism. Uh, and uh, uh, this led to a situation where systematically aggregate demand in Keynesian terms uh, of, in the world economy, at the world stage, was deficient in relation to aggregate global supply. And inevitably, somebody has to pay for this. And uh, obviously, under capitalism, poor nations should to pay. And at this backdrop, we should see the US-China uh, conflict, uh, because now, uh, when uh, this situation led to enormous crisis, to global crisis, and for the last 15 years, we see that, uh, that uh, ruling elites of the leading uh, capitalist countries failed to find any constructive way out from this, uh, from this crisis. And inevitably, this led to an attempt on the part of United States and Western countries to shift the burden of crisis to developing nations. And I, uh, I believe that this is the most important reason why um, relations between China and United States um, wasn't so much. Uh, in fact, United States uh, demand from China to share greater burden of the crisis and continue supplying uh, Western countries with cheap goods and reinvesting uh, their, uh, their 
revenue from export in Western financial markets. Naturally, China as a growing nation, whether it is, uh, uh, it, it is mixed economy or socialist or capitalist, in any case, it refuses to, uh, to limit its own development in favor of such obviously financialized and parasitic type of Western capitalism. And uh, this is the reason why international relations exacerbated, because um, uh, US strategy is to isolate China. It is obvious, uh, even before the pivot to Asia thesis uh, proposed by Obama, uh, it, uh, even before this, it was quite obvious. And uh, such a strategy changes its shape and form under uh, last few presidents, but it is still persistent. Uh, Trump tried to organize it uh, in uh, other way than, than Obama tried. Mr. Biden continues this strategy in other form. But in any case, uh, we see an attempt to, to isolate China economically, to isolate it diplomatically, to isolate it militarily, to isolate it technologically, to isolate it financially. And, uh, the, uh, and very big gap in this policy of isolation is Russia, because for Russia, China is, uh, is a very important, one of the most important economic and political partners. Uh, and without China, Russia joining this policy of isolating China, uh, this policy will not succeed. Uh, and this is, uh, I believe, it is the reason why uh, Western countries uh, now try to suppress China and why this proxy war, the uh, US-led proxy war was started in the terms uh, in which um, Radhika put it down in her book. Uh, so I, I think that this is the most important reason why this war started. It is the struggle of the Western countries against China. Uh, so uh, these two, uh, uh, Russian-Ukrainian uh, conflict should be considered in close connection with U.S.-Chinese relations. And uh, uh, I, I believe that expansion of NATO to the East, which was the most dangerous international event for Russia, uh, to which it reacted um, by this uh, joining this war, uh, this expansion of NATO to the East should be considered uh, in close connection with this US-led strategy of isolating China. Uh, and um, Ukraine uh, is the most vulnerable uh, point for Russia because these two countries were up to uh, recent dra uh, dramatic and tragic events were so closely interlinked. And uh, revival of China was seen by its ruling elite uh, revive, revive, sorry, reviving of Russia after breakdown of the Soviet Union was seen by its uh, nascent capitalist ruling elite as, uh, as leadership in the former Soviet space. Uh, I'm not sure that this policy is fair. It is absolutely capitalistic, extractive, suppressing. Um, Russian capitalism tries to become local core for the former Soviet space. Uh, but in any case, 
uh, it was done on the same uh, on the same uh, political and um, legislative foundations on which the, the West tries to impose its domination over world economy and over developing countries. Uh, and um, so in, in the eyes of Russian ruling elite, this policy of Russian domination in the former Soviet Union space was absolutely justified, but it goes against Western strategy. Both strategies are unfair. Uh, and this led to, uh, to this unfortunate war. And uh, I'm afraid it is a, a challenge, not only for Russian capitalism, but uh, for uh, Chinese attempt to delink from uh, Western countries as well. Uh, I think that uh, Radical's book provides a very good analysis, very deep insightful analysis, which helps us to see this picture uh, of this war as a part of, uh, of the holistic picture of modern capitalism. Thank you. Thank you, Ruslan, for the very insightful comments and contributions here. I think especially the point you made about the importance that China has played in the global political economy. Earlier, part of our discussion was largely looking at the U.S. economy and the Chinese economies in isolation. But when you look at how inextricably linked they are and how U.S. economic growth has been largely contingent upon China's role in global supply chains, I think it's a very important contribution. Also, your, your point stressing how U.S. containment policy toward China is so closely linked to the proxy war against Russia and how this has also driven China and Russia together. I'll briefly say before I move to the next speaker, your comments reminded me of remarks, very candid remarks made by the EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell, last year, where in off-the-cusp remarks at a speech for diplomats in Brussels, he said that the cheap energy from Russia and the cheap consumer goods from China did more than all of the central banks in the world to contain inflation. And coming from the mouth of a political figure, not an economist, you know, a lot of people kind of ignored those comments, but I think they're very revealing. And it shows that even in Western capitals, there is a lot of acknowledgement of how important China and Russia were to the, the Western political economy as well. Um, next, I have the enormous privilege of being able to introduce Michael Hudson, um, an enormous influence on me and I think one of the most important economists today, he is the president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends. He was a Wall Street financial analyst, a distinguished professor, a distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and the author of many books. Um, and he and Radhika also host a show together that I am honored to host over at Geopolitical Economy Report. So. With that said, Michael, the floor is yours. Michael, you're muted. Okay. Uh, I want to talk primarily about the political points and the analytic frame that uh, Radic has used. 
and I think the basic theme of her book uh, is that what used to be socialism has been replaced by a very technocratic view that avoids looking at uh, today's economic polarization uh, between the 1% and the 99% uh, in terms of class interests. Uh, she focuses, uh, on, as I do, on the financial interests that have replaced industrial capitalism as uh, the organizing force. Uh, in, in today's capitalism is very different from uh, what occurred in Marx's day and what he was uh, analyzing, and the world has not uh, turned out as optimistically uh, as Marx had hoped that industrial capitalism would evolve into socialism. Uh, instead of uh, advocating the socialization of infrastructure, you have today's social democratic parties uh, uh, advocating a sort of a public-private partnership. Uh, now, uh, our, uh, Radica's point is that this kind of partnership is not really going to have much uh, for the public sector, except, uh, as they say, in socializing uh, the losses and privatizing uh, the profits and the, uh, the financial gains. Uh, but if you look at public health, education, credit creation, what used to be social democratic uh, and uh, labor parties have turned Thatcherite. They've, they've followed uh, the British Labor Party uh, and going even uh, more to the uh, technocratic rights. Uh, and largely, this is because uh, finance has become uh, the, the core. Now, this is difficult to fit into most people's class analysis of society because uh, finance is not a class issue as such. Uh, Marx pointed out that interest-bearing debt and bank money creation are external to the economy of production and consumption. Uh, they're imposed on it. Uh, and that's why he said economies don't need a rentier class. Economies don't need a landlord class. They don't need a banking class. Uh, uh, and the role of industrial capitalism to Marx was to get rid of the rent-seeking classes, to get rid of the landlords, to get rid of the uh, monopolists, and uh, get rid of the uh, predatory banking, and basically to make all of this part of the industrial economy. Uh, and instead, that hasn't uh, worked. And the uh, socialist movements have not analyzed uh, how Seriously, this has not worked. Uh, and uh, really what's at issue is what is ex exploitation today uh, and how has it gone beyond what uh, the traditional left has uh, analyzed? And that's, I think, what uh, Radic is uh, focusing on. Uh, labor is not only exploited by being employed and having the employer, the capitalist, sell its products at a markup. Uh, today, labor is exploited by having to go into a lifetime of debt if it uh, ha uh, wants to buy a home of its own, uh, or to get an education to get a job, or to borrow to buy a, a car to drive uh, to the job, uh, and or to pay for the, for the medical bills, all of these things that were expected uh, to be uh, socialized. And uh, under a rentier economy that's dominated by the banks and landlords and monopolists, uh, you, you do have a, a rentier class that obtains income uh, at the overall economy's expense and is not part of it. That's why uh, I'm very dubious about uh, uh, the idea of measuring American 
versus China's uh, economic power in terms of GDP. Uh, since a lot large part of Radica's book is how societies have coped with the the uh, uh, the virus, uh, the coronavirus. Uh, look at the fact that in the United States, uh, medical care and healthcare is 18% of GDP. This is more than any other country. Uh, why, uh, in other countries, it could be maybe 5% of GDP. Uh, it's much lower in China. So all of this is what I think of as empty GDP. It's uh, rent-seeking, it's exploitative, it's unnecessary costs, what Marx called the faux fray, the false costs of uh, production. So uh, it's bloat. Uh, and do we really want to say, well, America's beat uh, China in the race to have a bloated economy? Uh, the, the largest part of the American GDP turns out to be rent-seeking classes. Uh, how, uh, the rising in the price of housing is counted as part of GDP. Uh, interest charges are part of GDP. If you're uh, making a uh, Credit, you're late in your credit cards and your uh, interest rate goes up from 19% to 30%. That's all added to GDP. America's winning that part of the GDP uh, uh, race, but it's an empty GDP. And uh, China's success is doing what uh, a good industrial capitalist country was supposed to do and avoiding this bloat, uh, getting uh, avoiding the whole kind of superstructure of financialization that has uh, prevented the United States from actually uh, competing uh, with China. There's no way that somehow the United States can say, we're going to isolate China, and that's going to enable us to go back to uh, producing our own uh, cars and consumer goods and uh, uh, chips. Uh, nothing is going to enable the United States to do it because of its high uh, financial costs, its high real estate costs, its high health care uh, costs, and its uh, monopoly costs. It's painted itself into a corner. Uh, and that's what uh, somehow the left has been part of this uh, product uh, process because it's ignored uh, the role of rentier wealth. Uh, and, and it focuses on uh, industrial uh, com uh, conflict between employers and their workers, and that certainly is a very important point, but it misses uh, the big point, uh, the sort of vulgar Marxist uh, view that uh, really came out of uh, uh, Stalinism was just uh, capitalists or exploitators, exploiters, not uh, the state not uh, uh, any other class. And uh, the technocratic reformers uh, have looked at uh, all of this in terms of, of profit. Uh, I, I'm very wary of comparing uh, um, the profits of American uh, industry uh, to uh, profits of other countries, because uh, the aim of a corporation in America today is not to make a profit. It's to make absolutely no profits at all. Everything is expensed and counted as part of a GDP so that there's no income tax on profits. Uh, they do this by uh, offshore accounting, 
by uh, offshore banking centers, by uh, fake fake costs like a, a depreciation for real estate. Uh, if you look at the actual statistics of what goes into how the GDP sausage is made, uh, you find uh, quite a different uh, picture uh, than you get. And uh, what's really at issue is what's going to be the role between uh, government uh, and the financial sector and uh, the industrial uh, sector. And I think toward the end, uh, at the end of the book, Radhika makes the points of let's uh, compare the analysis that she's using and that I use to what uh, uh, other people that uh, uh, represent what's called the left are saying. Uh, she quotes uh, Maria uh, Masicato is urging a private public uh, partnership uh, for gr uh, greater efficiency without profit. But profit's supposed to be the aim of the uh, private sector. What is the private sector after? And uh, 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 when it makes a deal with uh, uh, the, the government, uh, a public-private partnership like Thames Water. Uh, you have in Thames Water nearly bankrupt, uh, but it's made a fortune for its privatizers by going, going bankrupt. Uh, under finance capitalism, you make a profit by driving a company bankrupt and leaving it as a shell. Thames Water borrowed an enormous amount of money. What did it use the money for? It did not use it to produce clean water uh, and uh, make a capital investment in uh, fixing the leaks and all of its water pipes or doing what it promised to do. It borrowed money and it paid it to itself as a dividend. Is a special dividend, is uh, management fees, uh, it borrowed money paid to itself, leaving a bankrupt shell in its wake. Uh, this is uh, how the savings and loan associations uh, were looted in uh, the 1980s, uh, for instance. Uh, and there have been a lot of studies about how uh, making, uh, making money financially, uh, because finance in uh, the West is primarily predatory, making money by finance leaves the whole economy is an emptied out shell where there's an enormous amount of debt that's owed by the economy at large to maybe the 1% of uh, uh, the financial class that still isn't looked at as a financial class uh, and uh, leaves the economy uncompetitive as an industrial economy. Uh, that's what China is uh, uh, trying to avoid. And that's really the task uh, before Russia, uh, before other countries. Uh, and I'm surprised that uh, uh, Mazzucato didn't discuss someone like Simon Patton. Uh, he doesn't appear in today's discussions very much, but he was America's first economics professor at the first business school, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania in the in the 1880s and 1890s. And Simon Patton said that public infrastructure should be looked at as a fourth factor of production, uh, government spending. But the aim of this factor of production is not to make a profit. Uh, it's not trying to make wages or rents or uh, profit uh, capital. It's trying to help the rest of the economy uh, make higher real wages, higher uh, profits for capital by providing the basic needs, uh, education, uh, transportation, 
uh, public health at a loss. And if the government's role in infrastructure is to provide public health uh, uh, at a loss, then corporations don't have to pay it. And uh, if they provide uh, transportation at a loss, then uh, labor doesn't have to pay, uh, bear the cost of transportation in getting to work. Uh, the capitalists don't have to bear uh, the cost of, of transportation. The whole idea of public uh, infrastructure, of socializing medicine, socializing education, socializing uh, uh, transportation and communications is to help industrial capitalism. And that's why it was the industrial capitalists themselves in the United States, in Germany, uh, in every successful industrial company that moved towards uh, uh, socializing uh, uh, the basic needs in order to create a low-cost economy that could undersell and compete with other capitalist economies more efficient and the most uh, more efficient uh, economy would be the one that can undersell uh, its opponents by being more socialist than they were. And that's what led Marx and the socialists uh, in the 19th century to think, well, industrial capitalism is going to evolve into socialism. Uh, and uh, they their assumption was that industrial capitalists would act in their own self-interest. That hasn't happened. That what has happened is a financial capitalism that is not in the self-interest of the dynamic of industrial capitalism. It's become something entirely different. It's become uh, a rentier, a financialized society. It's become what we call finance capitalism instead. And the victory of finance capitalism is uh, basically to undo the whole industrial capitalist revolution to free economies, to free markets from the landlords, from the banks, from the monopolists, and uh, produce a low-cost uh, economy. That was the whole idea of efficiency, that socialism was supposed to be uh, uh, efficient by creating its own uh, markets. Uh, and I think uh, uh, Radica makes that point very clearly in her book. Uh, the one uh, I think she's a little unfair when she uh, critiques MMT. Uh, I, I think her discussion is too partial. Uh, and as one of the uh, uh, founders of MMT, I, I have to uh, point out what what I mean by it and what most of us mean by it. Uh, it's it's point. Uh, it doesn't discuss class interests as such. Uh, uh, that's uh, Radica's uh, uh, critique, and she's absolutely right. It's not a doctrine of class interest. It's a doctrine of how money creation works. Uh, and its point is that government money creation is no more inflationary than private sector lending uh, to finance a budget deficit. That government's running a bu budget deficit pump money into the economy, uh, and every economy needs money and credit to operate on. And if the government does not provide this credit by running a budget deficit, then uh, the economy is going to have to do what it did in the late years of the Bill Clinton administration. It's going to have to borrow from the commercial banks uh, and uh, at interest and uh, at enormous interest. And it's going to have to uh, uh, do what banks lend uh, money for. And that is things that uh, help the financial sector, not that help the industrial uh, economy grow. So uh, MMT is a way of government uh, controlling the allocation of uh, credit 
the allocation of resources and foreign uh, uh, forward planning. And if the government does not take the lead uh, in uh, uh, as planner, then uh, the, the neoliberal idea of getting rid of government is uh, means uh, a kind of uh, 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 privatization. It means that the center of planning is going to be in Wall Street and the financial sectors. That's what the libertarian philosophy is. It's uh, central planning, much more centralized than any any uh, democratic government because it's centralized in the hands of the 1%. The libertarians and uh, uh, the neoliberal left want a centralized planning in the hands of the wealthy people because they say most wealth is created financially. So uh, if we want an efficient economy, let's create wealth. And you can create much more wealth financially by uh, cannibalizing an industrial firm than actually investing in, uh, in uh, 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 industry. So uh, the whole point of MMT is how is money created by the government? Well, uh, that's not the whole of MMT analysis, because it's true that uh, Stephanie uh, Kelton, uh, who she criticizes, doesn't discuss class interest in the talk. And uh, she just explains uh, what it is, uh, uh, what money creation is. But uh, MMT, is, uh, we've gone around the world together. And her role is to give the introductory technical uh, discussion of MMT. And then uh, my role is to come on second and say, the key is, what are you going to create money for? You can create money in the way that Donald Trump uh, and uh, uh, Vice President Dick Cheney created money. You can create money to go to war. You can create money to bail out the banks, uh, as uh, Obama did. You, you can create uh, uh, money for tax cuts, as Trump did. Or you can create money by actually spending money on infrastructure, on, on labor, on employment, on social, uh, socially uh, productive forms of investment. So uh, th this is the whole po point of the MMTers is that money should not be uh, created for the use by the financial sector to do what Radica quite rightly create uh, 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 criticizes the financial sector for. Money should be created by the state to promote economic growth. That is what has enabled China's economy to become so much more efficient than the U.S. economy, because it's treated money as a public utility. Uh, it, it is not commoditized money. Uh, like occurs in the United States and in the West, uh, and as uh, the neoliberal uh, left wants to do. If, treated, uh, if the government creates money, then uh, it can decide what do we want to create money for to lower the economy's cost of production, to increase capital investment, to, uh, to become uh, economically independent. Uh, is uh, China's become independent. And I like the comment be uh, before that was made about uh, Huawei. Uh, the United States has imposed sanctions uh, on uh, uh, China, thinking that, well, if we impose sanctions on Russia, and China, then uh, they're going to be they're going to uh, uh, be crowded out of uh, this field. And uh, what they don't realize is that imposing sanctions on a country has the same effect as this country produce uh, 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 enacting protective tariffs on itself. It forces the country either to become self-sufficient 
or to become dependent on the United States that would love to monopolize uh, computer chips and high technology uh, and as intellectual property rights to yield mon uh, monopoly rent. Uh, and what happens that uh, countries, obviously, uh, the, uh, the global majority today uh, wants to realizes they need to avoid becoming uh, dependent on rent-seeking the United States by being uh, uh, independent in essentials. And so everything that uh, the West, the United States and Europe imposes as a sanction ends up losing this market forever. Because once other countries become independent, creating their own computer chips or whatever technology you're using, they don't need to import anymore. Now, uh, the point has been made that China uh, spent, has been spending more money on importing computer chips than on importing oil. Well, just imagine this whole market has been lost to the United States and Europe. And uh, that means that instead of uh, uh, successfully consolidating control and centralizing it in the United States companies and, com and uh, uh, companies that are under US uh, control, it's lost it's lost the market. It's lost uh, everything forever. Uh, and that is the basic dynamic that uh, Radic and I talk about in our uh, our programs. And I think that's uh, the basic dynamic uh, in that she described in the book. Why hasn't the left realized that this is the way to go? Uh, why, why, why have they suddenly let themselves be hijacked? Uh, I think, uh, and indeed, uh, uh, to save uh, the rest of society from this, what uh, what is really important in understanding economy? That I think is what the book uh, the book uh, is a great contribution for, and to me, that's the whole point of it. Thank you, Michael. Very interesting comments. And today, I mean the the discussion has been extremely enlightening, and we've seen such a variety of views um, with so many great thinkers, and and it's also quite interesting to see people um, who, you know, I think so many people agree on probably 80 or 90% of things, but it's fascinating to hear the different perspectives on the, the different issues where there are some disagreements. And I think, you know, Michael made a very important point earlier, we were talking about, you know, whether or not we should look at China's GDP in terms of nominal terms, purchasing power parity, but Michael made a great point about how even GDP itself, regardless of whether it's nominal or PPP, it includes rent-seeking unproductive sectors like the healthcare industry in the United States, like private equity, which is destroying the economy and all these corporators are destroying existing firms, but they're contributing to GDP growth. Um, so with that, I'm gonna now introduce the author herself. And then I believe after Radhika speaks, there will be some time for um, further comments and discussion. But um, Radhika is a professor at the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba. She's the director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group and the convener of the International Manifesto Group. She has written numerous books, including the, her previous volume, Geopolitical Economy After U.S. Hegemony, Globalization and Empire. And also, I should mention that today we are talking about her most recent book, Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War, A Geopolitical Economy, and that book has been made publicly available, free to download as a PDF, thanks to support from the foundation Knowledge Unlatched. 
So with that, Radhika, the floor is yours. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, uh, Ben, for agreeing to share this. Uh, I just also want to say thanks to all the speakers who have so graciously uh, devoted their time and their effort to, to doing this and to engaging with what I have to say. I feel at all at once honored, touched, humbled, and uh, absolutely delighted to, to have this engagement and to, to, sh to share our thoughts. Um, I'm going to respond in the order in which uh, uh, people spoke and, and made their points. Obviously, uh, the the richness of the contributions means that I, I, if I respond to all of them, we'll be here till for many more hours. So I will try to select some uh, main points to which I would like to address my remarks. So uh, first of all, you know, uh, Robert, you you started by saying that you know, uh, some often scholars focus on what is changing and not enough on what has not changed, and this sort of relates very directly to a point I find myself making very often, and a point that I've made both in geopolitical economy and in capitalism, coronavirus, and war, and that is that since about 1914, which I have taken in my analysis to be the high point of imperialism, we have been experiencing a, a decline of imperialism. That's like now more than uh, nearly 110 years of this decline. So it's clearly not as fast as I would like. And I am painfully aware of, of, of this. So, uh, so the statistics that you present about the United States might and power are sobering and interesting, but I would also like to cast, I would like to put them in a larger context, the kind of context in which I would see them. So first of all, I would like to say that, you know, uh, to talk about multipolarity, to talk about the decentering uh, uh, or, or, the, uh, or, or the displacement of, of the United States and more generally Western countries from, the, from the, being the center of gravity of the world economy does not necessarily require that all the countries become as rich as the United States in terms of GDP, etc. Because I think that already uh, a certain level of, 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 of uh, uh, productive capacity, of political stability, cohesion, etc., is already enough to prevent the United States from imposing its will on these countries. The United States, I'm sure, I mean, the United States has basically lost every war that it has fought, except when it comes to overrunning tiny countries like Grenada or Panama. So in that sense its ability to 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 subordinate other countries has always been relatively questionable but nevertheless so 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 it cannot do it by by force or anything and the United States would today, for example, I'm sure love to overrun Iran or, or, or what have you, uh, uh, but they cannot because the fact of the matter is such a conflict would be too costly and not necessarily winnable. Secondly, I want to elaborate on a point that Michael made. I think that Michael, I thought your expression empty GDP was a very valid one. I think that there are such there is such a thing as empty GDP. And to your point about uh, of, uh, about uh, healthcare, the example that you gave, I would also like uh, like to add, of course, the military industrial complex. And on top of that, which you know does not increase anybody's well-being, but counts massively in you know the United States spends some one trillion dollars on its military, so that's one out of twenty trillion dollars of U.S. GDP is accounted for by by this uh, thing that does not really improve anybody's uh, welfare. But in addition to that, I want to draw people's attention to the research of Jacob Asser in particular, who talks about the financialization of GDP and the extent to which in the United States, in particular 
particular, a combination of the increase of financial activity and certain changes made to the way in which GDP statistics are compiled in the United States, it really exaggerates the size of the US economy. And this uh, should, uh, you know, this is an important thing that one should uh, keep, uh, keep an attention to. Thirdly, I'd like to say that, you know, in my book, I've tried anyway to, 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 to see as a, as a good Marxist, as I still consider them myself, although I have criticisms of most of what passes for Marxism as well. But nevertheless, I try to see the contradiction in the picture. From the graphs that you were showing, you, it was very clear that the United States has been, you know, gaining in GDP and in per capita GDP and what have you. But what's also clear is that a lot of this gain has come at the expense of its so-called allies. And to me, this is also a, a, a contradiction, which you are seeing played out right now in Europe, where uh, the United States is asking, and so far European countries seem to be complying in essentially acquiescing in the deindustrialization of Europe, uh, which is quite serious. However, the question remains how long are ordinary Europeans, but also how long are a, a, a European capitalists going to necessarily put up with this? I don't know that I know the uh, the answer to that, but I think it's um, uh, it's 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 an interesting uh, uh, it's an interesting point. Um, uh, uh, yeah, and and then uh, finally, I just like to say that um, what you don't really, you know, as I've already uh, pointed out in my uh, in, in by pointing out uh, the need to look at what people like Jacob Assa are saying. Um, on the whole, even when you talk about U.S. corporations, uh, you know, uh, showing how dominant they are. I mean, Michael, you contested this by saying that you know the U.S. corporations try not to show profit, but I think this may actually be in Robert's favor if they are not trying to show profit and then still apparently making so much profit, then, then Robert's point is further reinforced. But what I would like to say is that actually the, you know, Nicholas Shackson in his book, Treasure Islands, you know, where he examines the role of all these uh, Bermuda, you know, Bahamas or wherever, these, these, these places where you sequester your money. In this book, he says, that of course, the UK is the biggest treasure island in the world. Uh, and I would say that the United States in recent decades has been, on the whole, essentially following a UK-style financialization strategy. And so it has also become a treasure island. So in a certain sense, I would say that it would be interesting to see whether companies do not have a tax incentive in reporting higher profits in the United States. I think that that, may, or that would also have to be uh, taken into account. And finally... Also, you know, I uh, 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 so so these this 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 um, statistic that you you are sharing, which is for, uh, compiled by Forbes, you know, which which says you know these uh, these are the top two thousand companies and so on. In these top two thousand companies, this this statistic is arrived at. It's from what I understand by using a combination of uh, assets, you know, size of assets. Uh, market value, profits, sales, things like that. But cert so in certainly in the uh, calculating the size of assets and certainly in calculating market value and possibly also in profits, 
the role of financialization is not taken into account. I mean, if you if you see how absurdly high the market valuation of U.S. corporations are is today, how completely out of whack it is from uh, its the actual value of these uh, these corporations and the profitability of these corporations, which we saw particularly during the pandemic when you know the economy was tanking and stock markets were going in the other direction. All of this is the result of vast quantities of money creation that we saw. Uh, we have seen actually over the last decade and a half since the 2008 financial crisis. And I would say, in fact, going back earlier, Michael and I sometimes dispute this, but I think that easy monetary policy actually began under Alan Greenspan early in the 21st century. And then he was forced to interrupt it by increasing interest rates to about 5% in the mid 2000s, which basically became the needle that the the, the 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 housing and credit bubble, but anyway, so so the, all of this and plus also of course Greta Krippner's uh, a very interesting now quite old analysis, but I'm sure it's still valid about the financialization of productive corporations. So the extent to which the profits are made out of finance should also be looked at. So all in all, I would say that the, this is this is the broader frame within which I would examine these statistics that you that you showed. Um, finally. Uh, because you don't pay attention to financialization, which you know those of most of the people who do tend to pay attention to it from a critical point of view, regarding it as something highly problematic. So you are not necessarily uh, paying attention to um, you know the underlying. Uh, productive capacities and technological capacities and so on. And uh, there is, you know, the uh, uh, very famous report by ASPI, which is, I think, the uh, it's an Australian outfit that is uh, very pro-war and so on. I think Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And their report says that uh, China has a global lead, according to them, in 37 out of 44 technologies which they are now tracking, uh, covering a crucial technology field spanning defense, space, robotics, energy, the environment, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, advanced materials key quantum computing areas I, now you may say that you know an organization like aspi is trying to be like a cassandra you know it's trying to uh, predict what it wishes to prevent uh, fine it it may be it may be so but certainly that's what they are saying and i think on the ground uh, i think both ruslan and michael have, have emphasized the extent to which uh, the us strategy in recent decades has actually been to not be a maker but to be a taker. And this already is, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the whole world. So this already, while it may for the, for the moment show that, you know, I mean, the, the profits that you are showing is part of the taking, but this taking is based on an extremely volatile and unstable uh, uh, foundation, which we are now seeing the earthquake that is taking place in this foundation. So, so those are, I guess, some of my Oh, and I guess I should say one final thing, which I think was both you and Jayati raised this question. So, you know, you say, well, is China socialist? So obviously, you know, my usual answer to this question is, uh, yes, there are many capitalists in China. Yes, uh, in China, there's also a lot of inequality. Yes, these capitalists are some of the uh, heads, some of the biggest corporations in the world. Yes, these capitalists are also members of the Communist Party. But, and this is the point Jayati also made, and I uh, it's just 
she, she sees this, this as not a sign of socialism. And so we are maybe getting into a bit of a semantic debate. But I think to me, the most important thing about China is that in China, the reins of policy are not held in the hands of the corporate, uh, of the collective corporate capitalist class. They are held in the hands of the party state. Now, you may f find many faults with the, what the party state is doing, whether it's socialist, you know, whether its policy is sufficiently socialist or not. But the fact of the matter is that it seems to me, and I'm happy to discuss this further, and, and I will revise my view in light of what you say, but it seems to me that the party state can, it has in its own interest, the need to maintain its legitimacy within the country. And, and today, from what I can see, it has a considerable, it has vast legitimacy, far greater legitimacy than and the governments of so-called democratic countries in the Western countries. And in order to maintain this legitimacy, which is, by the way, also an important resource for the Chinese, you know, in terms of expanding its capacity uh, to, to do things, uh, the party state has to do certain minimal number of things that are socialistic. And I think that this is, uh, you know, uh, to me, this is uh, uh, this is what makes China socialist. I'll come back to that point a little later as well. But th these were my responses to, to Robert's question. Uh, with Victor Gao, of course, I agree I, uh, with, with a lot of what he said. I believe that manufacturing matters. At the end of the day, you cannot just be a taker. You also have to be a maker. Uh, I was also uh, particularly uh, uh, agreed with the points he made about advances in military technology, because to me, it demonstrates another really interesting aspect, perhaps shall we say contradiction, of the US situation, where the US spends more on its military than the next XYZ, whatever it is, dozen, 20, 24, however, it depends on the year in which it's measured, states combined. Fine. So you're spending all this money, but in fact, you cannot get your military industrial complex to make the weapons that will allow you to win any wars. I mean, right now, China and Russia are uh, producing weapons that are far more technologically sophisticated from what I understand. I'm not a military technologist, but I try to read about this as much as I can understand. And they are producing uh, these weapons, which the U.S. is coddled military industrial complex cannot produce when the putin announced the uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the the announced that russia can now make hypersonic missiles and that they have demonstrated it this was back in 2018 apparently uh, the Pentagon had a Sputnik moment. That is to say the Russians are once again ahead in a very important technology, which the Americans still have not been able to replicate precisely because their military industrial complex does not exist to produce effective weapons. It exists to swallow government largesse. And, 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 and as a consequence, you, 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 you have this very uh, problematic scenario. So I agree particularly with, um, with, with Victor, Victor Gao's points. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, I will, uh, I will concede to him, I, I, I don't know as much as I should about this coming digital technological revolution, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say that the recent, um, uh, even before the recent uh, 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 strides made by Huawei uh, by producing this chip that is essentially the equivalent of what the United States does not want it to import, um, 
I was already saying that the Chinese have demonstrated a remarkable capacity to uh, forge ahead on, on a technological innovation. I mean, it seems to me that the party state has the capacity to essentially accomplish any goals that it sets itself. You roll up your sleeves and, and get down to it. And you can, you know, the United States doesn't want you to have certain technologies. They will, they will make their own. I mean, this is, you know, at the end of the day, technologies in the US are produced by human beings. In China also, there are human beings there are all of them have you know the, the if the state invests enough in education training scientific personnel these states can do what uh, the united states has done so and 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 finally i also would like to say that you know uh, these statistics that you we that we can see of you know great us power and so on does not explain us belligerence if the us is doing so well why is it being so belligerent why why is it losing its purchase over uh, over the rest of the world and and i think there uh, 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 and and developments in the rest of the world and there again gao's uh, victor gao's points about china wanting peace and development i think have to be taken seriously again jayati said you know that china does not have the same imperial background and so on and i completely agree with that but i would also add further that actually what china has been doing is bending over backwards to achieve peace uh, uh, and 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 one can give various examples, whereas the United States has been uh, uh, leaning forward as much as possible into uh, uh, into uh, uh, provoking uh, and inciting uh, war. So so that's uh, those were my remarks about Victor Gao. I would particularly like, like to thank Jayati for uh, all her three major points that uh, that she made, which were very, uh, to me, very thought provoking. And I want to say something about them all. But I just want to correct one small problem. Uh, in the, uh, and I agree with an enormous amount of what Jayati said, of course, um, is that I actually do not argue that this is the end of the neoliberal era. I was uh, I was wrong footed once when 2008 happened. I published a column saying that this is the end of neoliberalism. And then I had to rethink my understanding of what neoliberalism was. Neoliberalism is not about markets. Neoliberalism is about the power of big corporations. We for the last 40 years, we have been we have had governments of both so-called right, well, the real right and the so-called left. Uh, uh, which have been devoted to nothing more than the advancement of the power of big corporate interests. That is neoliberalism. That is not going anywhere. And in fact, what I say in one of the chapters uh, of my book, which is, I think, called Know Your Enemy, uh, pseudo-civic neoliberalism versus neo-fascism. What I actually point out is that Western countries are today facing a, a, a prospect of either a transition to a new phase of neoliberalism. So to me, you know, you had classic neoliberalism in the 80s, you had globalization neoliberalism in the 90s, you had empire neoliberalism in the 2000s, you had austerity neoliberalism in the 2010s. And now we are going to make a shift either. So we, we could be making a shift to what I call pseudo civic neoliberalism in which what will happen is that the government in the name of addressing pressing social problems uh, and economic problems and so on will essentially engage in public-private partnerships or whatever they're called in, depending on the country in Britain, they're called private finance initiatives. They will essentially 
alleged buy, you know, a, 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 a contract with corporations to produce certain things, which they may well provide the public with for either very cheaply or for free, uh, but out of which corporations will make an enormous quantity of uh, enormous profits, enormous money without taking any risk whatsoever. So this will all look as though, you know, all these wonderful corporations are providing us with these wonderful things, vaccines or hospitals or what have you. But this is so that that is the direction in which the Biden types are going to take us. But this completely forgets that 40 years of neoliberalism and the failures of the left in the neoliberal context have produced forces further to the right of this as well, so that you have the Trumpists, the neo-fascists, and so on. So today, we are we, the, the, the transition to a new phase of neoliberalism or something which is, I don't know whether it's worse or better, but it will certainly be a lot more chaotic, which is some kind of neo-fascist authoritarian type of alternative, which are the two options available to people today uh, in, in Western countries. Um, also, I also agree with Jayati that uh, neoliberalism has not died in third world countries. Unfortunately, as we saw in Brazil under Bolsonaro or today uh, with Modi in India, uh, these uh, governments remain committed to more neoliberal policies than 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 they should in, in in a certain sense than is good for these countries to advance productively to advance economically but ne uh, but nevertheless they exist and there are far too many such forces but at the same time uh, i would like to say that uh, you know the exhaustion of capitalism, its conversion into a, a decaying, neoliberal, financialized, militarized form of capitalism is, it's, it's, it's basically uh, 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 not going to, it's, it's less and less of an option in more and more third world countries. So they will be seeking alternatives. And as they seek alternatives, the example and the partnership of China will entice them at least in a different direction. Obviously, one the China is different in one very critical respect. China has a revolutionary party state. Uh, it's not easy to invent revolutions. It's not a question of policy. There will have to be social and political changes in other countries for other countries to even begin to emulate what China has been able to do. And this is not at all guaranteed, uh, but I would say that certainly the historical pressure is, is, is going in that direction, but historical pressure by itself is nothing. Human beings have to become conscious of the choices they face and make the right choices. That has to happen as well. So, uh, so, 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 uh, so, 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 when Jayati says we are in the Western world anyway, going into a new kind of neoliberalism, I agree. But I also think that for the rest of the world, the example and the partnership of China are there. And I've also said in writing that for other countries, just to partner with China may not be enough. They will have to learn to emulate China, to engage in industrial policy, to engage in state-directed development of the sort, Robert, that you have. Uh, written about so much. Okay, so then Jayati's next point is that the pandemic is endogenous uh, uh, to capitalism. I, I actually agree. I think that's what you were saying, and I actually agree. I also think that climate change, I mean, if you look at is endogenous to capitalism, particularly neoliberal capitalism, and this 
is uh, uh, evidenced by the fact that for any major index of uh, 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 showing uh, uh, environmental degradation, whether it's uh, you know rising temperatures or uh, rising pollution, loss of biodiversity, etc., any graph that you see takes a steep upward uh, 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 trajectory after nine, circa 1980. So in that sense, neoliberalism actually, you know, people often say that growth and, uh, and environmental protection are not, they are incompatible. But the fact of the matter is over the last 40 years, neoliberalism has given us low growth combined with high levels of environmental destruction. And in that sense, I agree that it is internal. Uh, uh, to 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 this and and if uh, you know Jayati knows of course much better than me what bodies uh, you know how bodies like the WHO operate and what they are thinking and so on but I uh, I think that if uh, the WHO thinks that we, climate change is going to bring us more uh, climate uh, change related pandemics. I, I would not be at all surprised. It is the manner in which capitalism is destroying the environment that is that is uh, due to this. Um, uh, finally, I, uh, I've learned a lot from Jayati's writing exactly about this whole issue of whether uh, price rises are, are, have been uh, prompted by uh, 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 the, the Ukraine conflict uh, and so on, food price rises. I, and I, I think that she's right. Jayati has made a very important point that it's speculation that has uh, 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 raised the prices of food uh, in the rest of the world. Uh, so it's not the war itself. And in fact, I think that the food price issue has been politicized for uh, that reason, uh, uh, you know, to, to divert attention away from the real reasons. But there's also another politicization, which is that Western agribusiness is, is invested in Ukraine and Ukrainian agriculture up to its gills. So uh, a large part of this whole deal about getting grain out of Ukraine is about getting the grain that Western agribusiness will profit from out of, and it will not profit from it uh, unless it is actually sold. So the desperation to get this uh, grain out of Ukraine is is because of that. Uh, so so I completely agree with you, and and I I, I also loved uh, Jayati's phrase that this is a war between the producers of uh, of or, uh, you know war war between the producers of the means of production and the producers of the means of destruction i thought that was very very beautifully put and in fact uh, uh, jayati also seemed to imply that um, the military industrial complex may well have replaced the fire, the fire sector, the finance, insurance and real estate sector as, as central. Although in my book, I've said that these sectors, as well as other sectors such as big pharma and so on, that rely on intellectual property right compliance are all part of this core of, of the US and which is partly what is making the US so uh, militarily aggressive. Um, so, uh, yeah. And then finally, on Jayati raised the question of is China socialist? And I would say that, you know, basically, uh, we can debate this till the cows come home. I think we agree, Jayati and I agree on the nature of the Chinese regime. I choose to call it socialist and, and Jayati doesn't, which is then a, a semantic matter. Uh, but what I do feel is that as we live in a, a time when capitalism is visibly decaying, then the rest of the world, policymakers and ordinary people and people who are politically active will see that some other route is necessary than handing over the reins of the economy to a bunch of capitalists in your society. And as that route is taken, 
uh, and hopefully it is taken in, in as democratic a way as possible in, in ways that enhance popular power rather than diminish it, I think that we will be marching towards some kind of socialism. Um, so, uh, yes. And then finally, uh, Jayati did also say that uh, she feels that China's relations with the rest of the world are not uh, uh, relations uh, uh, of, you know, where China is being a benign uh, aid in development or anything, but rather that China is playing a, an extractivist role. But I've been very interested in this question and and, and I've uh, read a lot about, uh, particularly of the work that has been produced by Deborah Broutingham and her and her uh, uh, her team at the, uh, uh, what is it, the Center for Research in China. Uh, 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 so, uh, anyway, it is CARI, C-A-R-I, China Africa Research Initiative. Sorry, that's, that's the correct, uh, uh, at Johns Hopkins University. And I think that she has demonstrated that China's investments are not entirely focused on extraction alone. China also makes investments in uh, production uh, uh, in, in manufacturing and so on and so forth. But but I, I stand to be corrected if my if my sources are wrong. Um, further, then uh, I would say that, uh, and I uh, finally I agree completely with Jayati's understanding of human progress. Uh, it is not about GDP, particularly now that GDP has become such a corrupted figure that does not really measure human welfare uh, very significantly at all. Uh, so, uh, so, so, so in that sense, uh, I would say and that's partly why it's important to know that in order to develop, one does not need to match US GDP. What one needs to focus on, what policymakers and, and, and governments need to focus on is how do you enhance the development possibilities of the people of your country. Uh, Ruslan. Uh, Rusan, thank you so much for, for reading as closely as you have uh, my book, and I particularly appreciated that very much. I, I feel that uh, we, of course, uh, uh, we share uh, uh, so much of our perspectives, uh, of our understanding, um, and 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 so on and and I would say that uh, your understanding you 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 picked up on some very key things that I feel are important in what I'm doing. The first is that uh, the reason why I call what I do geopolitical economy, which is the title of my 2013 book and in the subtitle of my new book, the reason for that is that I think you cannot understand international relations or geopolitics in isolation from what is happening in the economy. In that sense, I'm a bit of an Engelsian. You know, Engels wrote this very important book, The Role of Force in History, and he related it. Uh, the ability to, to win militarily is connected with your industrial capacity uh, and all of these things. So to me, and, and, and of course, military conflicts are also about the, the question of uh, productive capacity uh, and of course, appropriating capacity and so on. So in that sense, I, uh, I think that you, you described what I'm trying to do in terms of explaining the current war in the context of what has happened since 2008, but also I would say what has happened since 1980, since the onset of neoliberalism, uh, this is uh, this is very very uh, important. Um, so uh, yes, and 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 so uh, da, 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 I'm just trying to uh, yes. Uh, and I think also, yes, I, I did want to come back on, you know, I, I have no doubt that you are right, that Russia, the Russian state as it exists, and you as a as a leftist, a good leftist, you are very critical of what the Russian state is doing. And I have no doubt that the Russian state is essentially aiding 
its ca Russian capitalists to try to dominate the post-Soviet space and, and, and so on. And I, I also feel that countries like India, say, for example, are also will be trying, capitalist countries like India will also be trying to advance the interests of their corporations with whatever sort of imperialist policies that they can come up with. But the key thing for me is that the kind of uh, uh, imperial policies that are today possible for countries like Russia or India are nowhere near as strong as what was possible for the traditional imperialist countries with the onset of capitalism. And the simple reason for that is the spread of multipolarity. That is to say the increasing capacity of more and more countries to produce from you know from abject poverty to something you know a decent standard of living and certainly to to have militaries that are able to resist and 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 governments and popular expectations that are able to resist imperial subordination puts very serious limits to what uh, what is possible uh, today so in that sense i i entirely uh, uh, to, and I entirely uh, agree with you. And I also think that your analysis uh, pr presents a deeper appreciation, I think, of the causes of the of the war in this particular aspect, the way in which what Russians want, uh, what the Russian capitalists rather want, and what the Western imperialist states and corporate capital wanted, they, they were in conflict. I think that was a very deep insight, and I really appreciated it. Um, Okay, and then finally, Michael. Uh, obviously, you know, you you and I have just so many agreements that I'm I'm just want to say I'm very grateful for for you for your presentation of what you consider to be the strengths of my book, which I think you know you are absolutely accurate. You are particularly accurate to focus on uh, the whole issue of financialization um, and uh, the extent to which this particular phenomena represents the decay. Of Western capitalism, so that that I entirely agree with you. I, as I said earlier, I loved your your expression "empty GDP," uh, and also your very interesting discussion of profits. I mean, I I think there was one uh, problematic point you made, but all the other points you made were completely valid. And and the fact of the matter is that the ability to take profits is not necessarily uh, a mark. Of, uh, of strength, and nor is it a mark of stability. On the contrary, it shows that the United States and US capital, both domestically and internationally, is, uh, uh, is, is, is standing on extremely shaky foundations, and, and they, can, they can be brought down by anything. On your point about MMT, I'll just say, you know, I always say about MMT the same thing. It's not that I disagree with the rational kernel of MMT, which is that government, you know, that that if the government created money, it would be no less inflationary than if it borrowed money. And I'm totally for creating rather than borrowing money, because borrowing money just uh, gives uh, uh, rich people uh, a double uh, you know, like a, a double deal. On the one hand, they are not taxed because the government is borrowing. And on the other hand, they are given a, an asset, an, an income earning asset that um, that they will have instead of being taxed. And somebody asks here what MMT means. MMT is modern monetary theory, the, uh, the, the theory that became very uh, uh, very famous uh, in the run-up to the last U.S. elections because everybody thought that President Biden would accept it and there would be an era of you know government largesse and so on. But see, my difficulty with MMT is this. Number one, there are two or three points. Number one, uh, as I as I like to say, I like to use what George Bernard Shaw said about somebody's book about MMT. 
There's much in MMT that is true and much that is new, but what is true is not new and what is new is not true. So that's the first point. The second point, so because Keynes said more or less the same thing. I mean, Keynes, uh, 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 we already have that understanding from Keynes. So the next point I want to make is that MMT has this notion of monetary sovereignty. Then, you know, any monetarily sovereign government can, you know, make as much money as it likes, but then it has had to, to, to withdraw this and, and say, well, maybe not all countries, well, maybe only the United States, et cetera. So, if what they're talking about is that the United States has the right to print as much money as it likes, then what they are actually doing is they are participating in imperialist wishful thinking. Because first of all, it is imperialist in the sense that they understand this as the unique exorbitant privilege of the United States. And it is wishful because actually the United States does not actually have that uh, 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 right. The fact of the matter is that beyond a point, uh, the printing of money is going to lead to a decline in the value of the US dollar. Uh, and it is going to make the US dollar less attractive. And so, and, and that's partly why, by the way, after Biden came to power and he announced all these uh, spending programs, first of all, the spending programs were very modest. And secondly, they were accompanied by considerable increases in taxation. If it was so easy for the United States to print more money, why did they not just do it? They didn't do it. So that's that's a, a final. Uh, that's my main point. But but for the rest, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, Michael, I think that all your analysis of um, of uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 way in which the fire sector is 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 undermining both production and consumption of necessary things in in U.S. life and elsewhere, I think is absolutely right. Your example of Thames Water was brilliant in showing how profits are made today. And I think that is also something we should factor in when we are thinking about, you know, well, if U.S. corporations are appropriating so much profit that this is a, a great thing. No, this is happening in, 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 in a way that is going to be deeply destabilizing, both in the United States and the, and the U.S. And that's why I have taken these two and the U.S. UK, sorry, these two countries are my models because they they are countries in which this type of capitalism has gone the furthest, and it is not a surprise that it is the politics of these countries that are the most chaotic, the most destabilized, uh, and broken. Really, broken is is what it is. That's why you have a, a plethora of new writing in the United States about whether the United States is going to experience another civil war, uh, uh, and and who knows what's going to happen in the next year and a half. Um, uh, before the before the next U.S. election, so so I guess I should uh, conclude all of this. Uh, uh, come to the conclusion. Now I've responded to all the points, and I once again would like to thank all the speakers for 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 participating in this and and saying such amazing things, uh, uh, such important things about the main thing, which is really trying to understand the historical moment in which we are living right now. Um, and uh, why we are experiencing such a, uh, a, a plethora of crises. So, uh, or rather rather than the crises of plethora, which was of course a, a term used about capitalism. So thanks very much. And thanks again to the speakers and to Ben. Great, well, Radhika, did, did you, I, we were already at over two hours, so I don't know if you wanted to continue the discussion, but. Did did we want to give some space for further responses and discussion? Uh, I I think if people would like, I'm fine with that. Great. 
Well, um, I know I noticed there was a, a pretty vibrant discussion going on in the comments, and Jayati had made a lot of good comments. I don't know if she wanted to to, to chime in, and I know also that um, Robert, I believe, wanted to contribute. You had said so. You know, I, I don't know I have if to either. Leave. Uh, ben, I'd have to leave now, so I'm afraid I can't add, but it was very interesting and great discussion. Thank you. Yeah. And I don't know if Robert is still with us. If I think I he believe... had to go. I think he had to okay. go. Yeah. Well, any other speakers, if you would like to go ahead and, and respond, please do. It's difficult for me to figure out because they're not all together on Zoom, but... Feel free to go ahead and speak. Well, I believe Victor left. It's very late here. It's almost midnight. So that that leaves Michael and and Ruslan. I don't know if either of you wanted to to say something, or if not, we can wrap up. Great. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Radhika's book, Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War, Geopolitical Economy, is available for free. You can get a download a PDF version, thanks to support from the foundation Knowledge Unlatched. I think it was a very insightful discussion. There's definitely a lot that I'm going to be thinking about. Um, it, it was Again, I, I want to reiterate that it's always so enlightening hearing so many different viewpoints from economists and political economists who are largely in agreement on so much. This is a, a space where we can have discussions about some of the minor details where there is disagreement. And I think I, I learned a lot from this today and I hope others did as well. So with that, um, whoever is live streaming, I think we can conclude. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. This is Victor, I'm still here. Thank you, bye-bye. Oh, thank you, okay. Victor. Yeah. Thank you, Radhika, thank you. Thank you, Radhika, and thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.